Aw, yeah. Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like to like to add a little something extra on my name, you know, let it let it linger. Leo, I was at the dentist today and the lady, you know, when you fill out these forms, they ask you what your name is. And then there's now they're starting to ask you what you prefer to be called. And I put down Leo, right? Because Leo is not my full first name. Uh, and now you're like, oh, what's his full first name? Oh, you're going to have to Google it. But so I put down Leo and the front desk uh, uh, person and uh, my hygienist and all, the next four people who worked there all call me by my full name. And, and I've had this happen everywhere I've been. Anytime they ask me for my, the name I preferred to, to be called by and I write that down, n- they never use it. And I, I, I should have corrected. I should have spoke up. This is the time. This is the time to speak up as a, as a black man in America. Like this is, <laughs> but then I, I was, here's where I was conflicted is then I'm like, that's just my slave name. You know, like I <laughs> couldn't win. Like now I'm fighting for my slave name. Um, that, got, that got real dark, ladies and gentlemen. They got very dark. You weren't ready for that. You were like, oh, what, what is this turning into? Uh, listen, I hope you're well. I hope you're, my teeth are clean, super clean. I, 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 only thing I hate, a lot of people hate going to the hygienist, uh, uh, to the dentist because they don't like to get their teeth scraped and clean. They don't like people fiddling around in their mouth, which I, I completely understand. Uh, I actually love it. I love knowing that w- whatever the plaque buildup is on my teeth is is being removed. I, I wish like somebody could do that with my arteries. You know, I there was a I had a long McDonald's and Burger King run. You know what I mean? Uh, big big Taco Bell run, and I, I don't I don't know. If all the all the plaque has been removed with all the broccoli that I've been consuming, but um, my the thing I hate about going to the dentist is that uh, eating afterwards. I don't want to eat. My teeth feel so clean. My mouth. I feel guilty for eating afterwards. I don't like it. I like the way my teeth felt before, and uh, if I could keep that, if I could keep that pre dental cleaning feel. But get the post dental cleaning look, then, then I'd be happy. Uh, that's neither here nor there. Today's episode is uh, fantastic. It's a long one. It's, this is this is a doozy. Kick back, relax. You, you know, in when I listen to podcasts that are, uh, I like to listen. To, some of them are three hours long that I listen to. Uh, I'll just speed the time up to one point five or or two. Or whatever, you know. Um, And you can do the same. But uh, this one is a doozy because we packed in. This is a nutrient-dense episode. We have the the infamous Alex Korb, who is a PhD. He's a neuroscientist. That's right. I'm bringing you a neuroscientist. He's a writer and a coach. He has studied the brain for over 15 years, attended Brown University, which we actually talk about during this episode because uh, and uh, I'll, I'll open up with a story about Brown 
which uh, gets very intriguing. Um, he's also an undergraduate there. And later, he earned his Ph.D. in neuroscience from UCLA. He has published over a dozen peer-reviewed journal articles on depression, neuromodulation, and other topics, and is the author of The Upward Spiral, Using Neuroscience to Reverse the Course of Depression, One Small Change at a Time. Now, I'm going to tell, tell you guys a quick story. It's not even a story, but an anecdote. Is that, you know, I've had other New York Times bestselling authors on the podcast. And I had one uh, which never aired because although they had multiple New York Times bestselling books, we just didn't vibe. It wasn't a click. And even reading the book, I was like, I'm not sure if I really feel the book. Not that I didn't get it. Not that I didn't find it. I even found the book useful. It even helped me, actually. And I talked about that in the episode. Uh, however, it, 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 it was just you no know, emotional click. And and it, it just taught me a lesson that it, even if somebody has like you know a billion followers and um, you know multiple New York Times bestselling books, like it doesn't mean that they're going to be interview worthy, right? Like we just we we still may not vibe. And so such is not the case with Dr. Alex Korb. Uh, you know, I read his. Not only did I listen to his book once, I listened to it three times because I, I was just I felt like there were so many aha moments. Uh, I was I was moved. He's funny. Um, he had a uh, he, he. We talk a little bit about he used to do stand up of all things. So we have a great time. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about uh, a million things. We're going to talk about how to wait. Let me let me look at I'm looking at all the wrong notes. Uh, we're going to get into uh, how to live life intentionally. Uh, we talk about. Uh, how to deal with performance anxiety. I mean, we're going to talk about all the things around depression, how exercise, gratitude, uh, self-talk. That These are, and I know if you're like me, I'm like, oh, I've already heard about self-talk. I've heard about gratitude. I heard about exercise. But when we, when we get down into the neuroscience of it, that's where it becomes really fascinating. And these are all things that we talk about in a very applicable way. So we're not just saying, hey, go get some exercise, huh? Um, and we also talk about performance anxiety, like how to overcome, whether it's in sports uh, or performance or in a bedroom, bomb, ticka, bomb, bomb. How do you overcome performance anxiety? Um, we talk about uh, ECT, TCM, antidepressants, all those things. And what else do we get into? Setting goals, sleep, how to develop. Oh, one of my favorites is uh, th there are four questions to ask yourself to motivate you to do anything you want to do. Four questions. I, I'm telling if you if you're like if you're struggling with motivation, right? This is the episode you want to listen to. Now I will warn you, there is a part of this episode where uh, we are sharing a story about uh, someone who ended their life. It's about. 38, it's going to be about 40 minutes in. And he, it's where he's talking about coaching Ultimate Frisbee. Um, if Now, I suggest that you listen to it because on the other side of the conversation, we talk about very applicable 
things uh, to do um, a while after in- ingesting this story. So I just want to give you a heads up that we spent about five minutes uh, discussing that, and um, but it's powerful. It was sad as I as he was sharing the story, I I felt myself wanting to tear up a little bit. And uh, so I just want to I want to put that out there to you because I, I don't usually now we don't share details we don't share how we just share that you know uh, a story about it so uh, be you know be aware of that and uh, you know if there's somebody you need to call because it's triggering feelings call you know call a friend call an enemy call ten friends call ten people have five people but make sure you have an outlet. Uh, to to deal with this, whether it means going for a walk or uh, cranking out, you know, 50 burpees, whatever it is, have that at the ready. Um, And with that said, you know, make sure you can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Uh, Because we've all struggled with tragedies, traumas, and transitions. and, And I want to share with you my self-soothing techniques and coping skills for managing those. So go to thrivewithleo.com. And with that said, let's get into the episode. Uh, Alex Corb, I'm excited to have you on today because uh, you went to Brown, right? You, you did your undergraduate at Brown? I did, yes. Well, I dated this girl who uh, apparently dated someone who went to Brown and still had his T-shirt uh, at her house. And uh, I I needed a T-shirt for whatever. And so I was walking around one day with a brown T-shirt on and three people ran up to me with so much excitement that they <laughs> met someone else who went to Brown. And when I told them I did not go to Brown, the look of disappointment, the the sadness, the 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 I, I felt like I. <laughs> like I, like I, I just told my dad I want to be a comedian for the first time. Like mm-hmm. it was destructive, and I have to tell you, it kind of left this residue of me wanting to go to Brown. Mm. Now, you, with you having gone to Brown, did you feel that that love? Was it like, like, would you feel that unity? Because I could not believe how much excitement people had about Brown University. Did you feel that there? I, I did. I, it felt really magical uh, to me. And I think it's it's sort of like, well, Brown is obviously like a very difficult school to get into. But I think when you look at all the Ivy League schools, um, they're all basically trying to be Harvard. Harvard's just better at it. And... Uh, but sometimes like Princeton will complain, no, we're trying to, but like, they're all trying to be the same, like Harvard, Princeton, Yale are sort of like the best at that. And they're just all competing with each other. And like, I won't talk smack about the other ones, but they're trying to be Harvard as well. And they're just not as good as that. And I think the thing that stands out about Brown is Brown is not trying to be, uh, Harvard. They're trying to be the best at their own thing. Uh, and in fact, I think one of the stats I read somewhere is that like when people turn down uh an acceptance to harvard the the place that they're most likely to go is brown uh and i think that it just sort of 
I don't know that, that like one of the things I've noticed about Brown graduates is like you're not gonna like necessarily everyone uh, that you meet uh, who who graduated from Brown, but they're all interesting and passionate, uh, and I think that that is just, you know, something special about, like, you might not agree with them and you might find them annoying, but they're going to be interesting. Yeah, that's exactly how I felt about, I mean, when I, when I visually think about the, the people who ran up to me and the energy that they had and the passion that they had, I was like, wow, they, I, I, I want some of that because, mm-hmm. you know, not every university like you teach at ucla right now mm-hmm. and i don't know if ucla students because i've been on that campus i don't know if they have that same uh energy for ucla that brown has for brown or like berkeley students have for berkeley you know right yeah but it's interesting that sort of the way you say that i feel like it's um because brown it's not like there's as much like, I think in a lot of places there's excitement for the university. You're like cheering the, you know, the name of your university and you're wearing, you know, your university sweatshirt and everything with pride. And I think there's something about Brown, like it's not so much the excitement for the university as it is excitement for the people who go there. Cause it's not like, I don't think of, you know, Brown people, and by the way, this is something when you go to Brown, you often refer to like Brown people and then like other people get very confused and they look at you weird. It's like, why you're talking about Brown people? <laughs> and, you're like, and it's like, well, many of my friends who went to Brown are Brown. But like, because like I'll talk to my friend who's Indian and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm hanging out with some Brown people. And like, no, no, he went to Brown. I mean, it also anyway, uh, the um, uh, but like it's not like there's a big uh, you know, a lot of flag waving about it. Um, it's like, you're just excited that this is another person. I think he went there. Uh, I don't know. That's, that's my interpretation of it. That, that makes it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it, but it's in my heart. I'm like, man, maybe I should, I should go to Brown. Cause I, I still have my PhD to go. And, uh, and, and that's the place I'm looking at. So yeah. But they do some cool research there. We're collaborating. I mean, like most of my interests in the stuff that we're talking about is about um, like uh, simple life changes that you can make that improve your happiness and well-being because they alter key brain circuits. But um, another area um, of my research, other stuff that I do is developing this new brain stimulation technique. It's like a very high tech approach. And um, working with some uh, people at Brown who are using the device. Um, and like, it's super cool. Uh, but it's like, I, basically, my, when I finished grad school, I was like working on this high tech device and it was like very frustrating and slow progress. But I was like, oh, we need to find some way to like be able to change brain activity to like help people. Um, and in doing so, I like thought back to a lot of stuff that I learned in grad school and a lot of the background research that I had done. And I realized I was thinking about changing brain activity in too narrow a way. Like I realized, oh, that doesn't just mean finding some way to 
you know, externally stimulate the brain or finding a new drug that will target some specific uh, chemical system. There are tons of ways to change the activity and chemistry of key brain circuits that don't involve high-tech, uh, you know, interventions developed in a lab. Simple things like deep breathing or exercise or changing your sleep patterns, like they don't sound like neuroscience, but like a lot of recent research has shown that like these simple types of life changes um, can change key brain circuits, often in more targeted and nuanced ways than these like high tech uh, interventions. So that, that sort of like bifurcated my career on like two paths. So I do have like the high tech um, path and it was great to talk to some people who are still at Brown, um, but the, the low tech path I think is sort of much more powerful and um, broad in how it can impact people's lives. Yeah, because I, I think there's a place for both, right? When I think about astronauts who are in a confined space or, uh, you know, uh, Navy, uh, 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 people in the Navy who are in submarines mm -hmm. for an extended period of time, they don't have access to sunlight. Mm -hmm. They don't have access to their friends and family. Uh, th th that I can see like the high tech becoming of great use in those situations where mm -hmm. you're, you're, you know, or p even people living in Seattle where it rains, you know, six months out the year. Right. Uh -huh. And you're not getting sunlight and, and going outside is uh, more uh, it's freezing, it's cold, it's rainy, it's all the things. And so uh, to, to bring in some LED or, or, or I forget what the what, what red lights I. I don't know. It keeps changing what, what kind of lighting <laughs> we need indoors. Or, you need you different know, lighting for different purposes. Yeah, exactly. And, and, or, and, or, and. God damn. Hello. Hello. Yeah. Oh, all right. Just... Um, or, uh, you know, getting a Peloton, you know, like it, there, uh -huh. there's a situation where it is better to go to a gym or work out outside. But if, you know, if, if that's not available to you, then, yeah, bring in a high tech gear. Right. Well, but that's I think um, if like what's available to you, I think really hits the nail on the head because people are often too focused on like, well, what's the best thing that they should be doing and not thinking about like, well, can you do that thing? Like, uh, for example, if you're stuck in Seattle, like. I mean, a lot of people like Seattle, but it's a little gray at times. And you like, you can tell them, oh, yeah, sunlight is important to help regulate mood and improve sleep quality. And they're like, but I can't get sleep. Are you telling me I have to move? And it's like, we don't have to move. But like, if, if you're experiencing problems that could be attributed to sunlight, then you could either move or you could get some sort of high tech device that um, you know, shines light on you. I mean, it's not that high tech. Uh, or you could just learn to accept that, yeah, sometimes during the winter, you're going to be a little demotivated. Or maybe you just need to get some more exercise at the right time to counteract some of those effects. Um, but like, I think when you understand why these things are happening to you and you understand that there are many options to choose from about what you can do about it and what you can do to change the activity and chemistry of your brain. It makes it easier to live your life 
intentionally. Because I think a lot of times people, like, they think of either one extreme or the other. They either think, like, well, I can't really do anything to affect my brain. I need to, you know, get medication or I need to get some, you know, brain stimulation device to, like, change everything. Uh, Or they're in the other extreme and think, well, no, you just have full and total control over your brain and your mood, like the, you know, law of attraction, you just need to visualize it and see your way into the world. And if you're facing a problem, like that's just because your, you know, your perspective is wrong or whatever. And the truth is somewhere in the middle in that you can change a lot of stuff about your brain, but you can't change everything. And there are some things that you can change where you can just do it on your own, like get some more exercise or change your sunlight um, exposure or change your sleep patterns or practice gratitude or whatever. And like those can have big impacts on your brain, but they're not going to change everything about it. Uh, And there are other uh, changes that we can make in the brain from, you know, antidepressant medications or, um, uh, ECT, you know, electroconvulsive therapy or um, transcranial magnetic stimulation, these sort of high-tech approaches. And I think sometimes people look at those high-tech approaches like, oh, well, that's not like, you know, you, you should be able to change everything by yourself. And like, well, some people have brains that they can be changed a lot just by exercise or yoga or all this other stuff. And other people will like, they, you know, based on the mood or the anxiety they have right now, they can't even make those changes. Or like, even if they did those changes, it's not going to have the full effect. Uh, So I just like to think of sort of high-tech interventions like medication or other neuromodulation devices as like one option that you have when trying to create an upward spiral in your life. you know, you're really depressed or you're really anxious. Uh, you will, you could take medication that would help, or you could try exercising. Like, which should you do first? Well, you know, there, there's no research necessarily to tell you like for you specifically what would work the best for you. But if you're telling me that you don't really get a lot of exercise and I say, well, you know, maybe you could try exercising and, uh, while you're waiting to go have an appointment with a psychiatrist, like try making some of these other changes and maybe that'll fix everything. Or while you're waiting for the medication to work, or like if you have problems with taking medication, whatever, like there, there are a lot of possibilities. Uh, there's not just one big solution to all of life's problems. Uh, you know, and, and exercise is such a big thing. I, I remember I did a cruise ship and Every morning at like five or five thirty a.m., I would see this this group of uh, uh, Asian women doing tai chi <laughs> uh-huh. outside on the yeah, you know before the US sun. A lot. Yeah, like yeah, and, and and they're just so happy, and they they don't have like any Fitbit on, or they don't have any Lululemon. They're just like out there moving to their to the little hearts, you know, they're not, it's not like a P90X workout. Like in America, we, we, we can't just do a thing. We, we always have to like, it can't just be yoga. It has to be like hot yoga for 90 yeah. minutes. Like everything has to be to the umpteenth 
degree. Right. You know, I, I can't I can't just meditate. It's got to be like a, a guided meditation by P. Diddy. Like <laughs> it's so and because and I'm watching them and they're just like they're they're so happy. They're so you know, I was even playing table tennis uh, w- with one of them afterwards. And I would I would miss a shot and I'd be angry. And right. then uh, the guy would just respond with, uh, don't worry, it's just practice. We're just playing. Yeah. And he yeah. just kept saying that over and over. And I was like, oh, you Eastern medicine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's like they're like sometimes people are like, oh, Eastern, you know, they're trying to compare Eastern medicine and Eastern medicine and Western medicine. And I think, you know, when I'm talking about high tech and low tech things, you can sort of like, you know, the Western medicine is the more high tech approach and the Eastern medicine is the more of a low tech uh, approach. But I think the problem comes when we're trying to like compare well, which is better than the other. And like they're they're different for different things. Like if you need a, a triple bypass surgery, well, like Western medicine is like really good at that. Like there are a lot of things that Western medicine is really good at treating disease and making you not sick. But there's a difference between being not sick and being well or being happy. And there are sort of certain elements of Western medicine where you reach limitations of like, well, you know, antidepressant medications might make you not depressed. Uh, and for some people, that means that they would be happy. But for other people, well, they're no longer technically depressed, but it doesn't mean they're necessarily happy. Uh, and if they were really depressed and they worked on some of these things that um, made them happier or calmer or feel more motivated, then maybe they would still technically be depressed, but they wouldn't care as much. Or maybe just by practicing gratitude or exercise or changing your sleep patterns, like you could overcome your depression. Uh, the problem is we don't, we, we, while we know there are tons of different things that you can do uh, that have been scientifically studied to say improve depression or anxiety, what we don't know is like what the specific mixture of those things that's gonna help you the most at this moment. So yeah, we know like on average medication is you know helpful for people who are going through depression or exercise is helpful for people going through depression or improving your sleep patterns is helpful for people going through depression but like for you specifically in this moment what should you do that's going to have the most likely impact we don't know so if you're really against taking medication i might try and explain to you well you shouldn't have a stigma against medication like that's just one way of say modulating the serotonin system and exercise is another way of modulating the serotonin system it's just that for some people's brains to you know simplify it well your brain might respond really strongly to medication while my brain might respond really strongly to exercise that that doesn't mean that my brain is better than your brain or that i have like a better form of depression uh than you do they're just different ways of targeting these key brain circuits. Uh, so I would try and explain, like, we shouldn't have a stigma against taking medication. Uh, but, uh, you know, if that's, you know, that's not a hill that I'm going to die on, because if you're still, like, 
no, I'm not going to take medication. Okay, that's fine. Like there are tons of other things that you can do. Or if you tell me, oh my, I can't do any of those things. I'm feeling too demotivated. Then I could say, well, then you should, you know, go see a psychiatrist, start taking medication. Like then that's going to, maybe it'll solve everything. Like for some people, you know, we, we sort of think, uh, some people are critical of medication, but for some people, like 30, 40% of people, just the first medication that they take, they're going to be completely better. It's going to completely eliminate their depression or their anxiety. And like, if you're one of those people, why wouldn't you take it? Like it just gets rid of the, uh, the disorder. It's just that we can't know ahead of time which people those are. So what are you going to do in the you know month that you're waiting to schedule your psychiatric appointment or in the you know two months that you're waiting to see if the medication is working or if the medication doesn't work, what are you going to do? And that's really what the upward spiral um, is all about of like, well, what are all the different things that you can do with your life to um, change the activity and chemistry of these key brain circuits to be uh, happier and calmer and more motivated? You know, it, it's one of the reasons that I, I have a thing I call the daily germs. Uh, mm. Every morning I journal, exercise, read, meditate, and self-talk. Mm. And what I found is that whatever's bothering me, troubling me, is alleviated if I click through all those five progressions. You know, like yeah. quarterback. It's like right. uh, first receiver, second receiver, third receiver, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And and so like when I feel myself, you know, as Abraham Lincoln described in his book, uh, becoming unmanned, uh, I I go, all right, let me I, then I'll start it all over. You know, it could be like uh -huh. three o'clock and I'm like, uh, I'm like, all right, let me go journal a little bit. Let me exercise a little bit. Let me read. And and as I'm clicking through, if I I go, if I get through all these and I'm still, uh, you know, feeling undone, then I, I there's I, I need to bring in uh, help, you know, a coach, right. a therapist call a friend, something, you know, or, or just do something different. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but I, but I find having that routine and clicking through. And, and I think that's like, what I love about your book is that, like you said, it's like, we don't know how much dosage of sunlight you need, or do you right. need to work out for 20 minutes or an hour? Some, you know, and I, I cause well, I, I can also tell you on, I was gonna say, like, we do know on average, like when I, you know, for all those things. Like I remember when I joined, uh, I worked in a sleep lab at Brown um, when I was an undergrad and our professor who's this renowned uh, sleep professor. She, um, she was like, well, college students need eight hours and 24 minutes of sleep every night. Uh, and one, she sort of said that to like emphasize that like, well, it's, you need more sleep than you think you do in college and nobody gets that much sleep. Uh, but Another thing is like that I took away from it that the specificity is kind of like silly because that's the average and there are no average people. Averages are made up of a bunch of people. So you might need a little bit more sleep to function optimally and someone else might need a little bit less sleep. Uh, just like some people need more food to maintain their weight and some people need less food to maintain their weight. The, like, the thing I find myself saying also, uh, over and over is that different people are different. So like, we know that sleep is important, and I can tell you, oh, well, 
if you said, oh, I'm only getting five hours of sleep a night and I feel really tired, I would say, well, you probably could look into getting some more sleep. Uh, or, uh, it, but you know, if you're all getting consistently quality sleep and you're like, oh, I feel totally rested and you know, I'm only getting seven hours of sleep, but it's high quality sleep. Okay, well then maybe sleep isn't your problem and you're just the kind of person who doesn't need that much sleep. Uh, but, you know, there's studies that have shown, like people ask me when it comes about exercise all the time, like, well, how much exercise do I need? And I can tell you the averages of like, well, to achieve the maximal antidepressant response on average, you need to get uh, exercise, moderate intensity exercise uh, three to five times per week for 45 to 60 minutes for at least 10 weeks. But that's, you know, an average of a bunch of people. So maybe you need less exercise. Maybe you need more exercise. Maybe how you're doing the exercise is important. There are a lot of other factors that go into it. And I think it's great that, like, you found a recipe that works really well for you. And I would recommend, yeah, that germs thing sounds great place to start. But for everyone, like, you can have these, like, guidelines to start and then it gives you an opportunity to try some things that tend to work and you can experiment like well does this work well for me or maybe i should do it in a different order or maybe i should add in something of this or this thing doesn't really help and i'll take it out uh but that's how you sort of take this generic recipe of well-being and experiment with it to learn more about yourself and figure out um what exact recipe you need to be happy at you know writing this book I, for a lot of people who writ, write books on depression or mental health mm -hmm. uh, i find i've usually struggled with it themselves have you struggled with depression in the past um or currently yeah um not currently i mean i like definitely feel uh you know demotivated uh you know working from home a lot of times or like overwhelmed or anxious um and uh, I do think one of the challenges that comes when, when people have received a diagnosis of depression or anxiety is that they then attribute all of the demotivation they feel, all the um, anxiety that they feel to their condition. When the truth is, a lot of those you know, ups and downs in emotions are just inherent to being human. And that even if you overcame your anxiety, well, you would still feel anxious sometimes because that's how the human brain works. Uh, the, um, uh, but yeah, I've, uh, I've never been diagnosed uh, with depression. I, I think in reflecting on um, some times in college, maybe sometimes afterwards, I've probably um, been depressed uh, for you know a few months at a time. Uh, and... And part of me, like, sort of, uh, like, that, that is one of the reasons why I went into studying the brain, because I wanted to understand, like, well, why is it that sometimes happiness feels, like, really easy and it just comes naturally, and other times it, like, feels like a struggle? Or why does it seem really easy for some people all the time, and, like, other people, it's difficult all the time? Like, what are the different, what's going on in the brain? And, uh, 
And when I was writing The Upward Spiral, part of me was sort of feeling guilty. I was like, well, I've never been technically diagnosed with depression. Like, do I have the right to speak about this? And I was like, well, uh, you know, I've done research for uh, many years on this. And I've, one of the things I came to understand is there's nothing technically wrong with the brain in depression. And so, uh, and like whether you have like a diagnosable level of depression, like isn't always that meaningful uh, because there's these things that you can do to affect the activity and chemistry of your brain circuitry to learn how to calm yourself down or make yourself feel a little bit more motivated or learn to accept the feelings that you have um, or improve more, uh, get access to more positive feelings. Like these things um, don't like require that you have a technical diagnosis. And I think sometimes we focus too much on the like, well, you just meet, you know, if you have five of these nine symptoms for two weeks or more, then you have depression if you don't. Uh, um, but anyway, the short answer to your question is I, I probably have been, uh, and, uh, I, but I think sometimes it's, it's less, uh, helpful to focus too much on the sort of like, um, bright line diagnosis. You, you know, you're absolutely right, because you're you're at the end of the day, we still as a species, as a being need exercise, need to connect with others, mm -hmm. uh, you know, need to be outdoors and get vitamin D. I mean, especially with the COVID and quarantine and just boosting uh, your immunity system. Vitamin D is so uh, important for that reason. And, uh, you know, also just to be outside and exercise mm -hmm. uh, to get us from in front of the, the screens. Uh you know, uh, it's a it's a cumulative effect of of just wellness and being that we should we should. Yeah, but, and uh, I think what, like one of the things about depression that like someone questioned me on once is because I often say like, well, there's nothing quote unquote wrong with the brain depression, and and someone pushed back once saying like, well, like in the medical profession, we're trying to tell people like, no, there's something wrong with your brain, like you can't just snap out of it, you can't get help. And I was like, well, sure. Like it sort of depends on like what you mean by wrong. <laughs> um, but like the, one of the reasons why it can be helpful to like get diagnosed with depression is if it means that you're going to start taking steps to deal with it and seek help from others because you can't always just take all the steps on your own and, and, and snap out of it. Uh, and that it, you know, really is something biological happening in your brain. I just don't think of it helpful to describe it as something wrong with your brain. Although if thinking about it as something being wrong with your brain helps you seek out treatment and allows you to be more compassionate towards yourself because you're like, oh, there's something wrong with me, then sure, there's something wrong with you. But for a lot of people, when they think of it as like there's something wrong with them, then they're like, oh, well, it's, you know, my bio, it's my biology. I can't do anything about it. And it, it makes them more critical of themselves because they have stigma and it makes them less motivated to do something. Uh, and so those are the people I'm talking to when I say like there's nothing wrong with your brain. Uh, but like it sort of comes down to semantics. Like, yeah, the, it depression is 
biological and it's about activity and chemistry of certain circuits um, that are in your brain and how they're communicating with and regulating each other. And some of that activity you can't change because it's a result of your genetics or a result of your early experiences. Um, but some of it you can change through medication or therapy or exercise or gratitude or social interaction or sleep patterns or sunlight. And you don't know until you try out those things how much of an impact it can have uh, on you specifically at this specific point in time. And so uh, I try and recommend to people like, well, don't stop trying to look for like the one big thing that's going to like fix everything and like just try incorporating more of these things that science has shown is beneficial to happiness, uh, like uh, all of these things we've been talking about. I, I, I love it. I want to I want to cover two things. One, I'm getting that rustling sound again from the, the mic. Uh, I can tell you're a very passionate, <laughs> right. very passionate speaker, as all brown students are. Um, and the second thing is, you're, you're right, because when I played college football, you know, I would always get performance anxiety before the game. And uh -huh. I'd end up uh, uh, I would have like, uh, you know, this is a little graphic, but I would have to go to the bathroom mm. uh, for a while before. And so it got to the point where uh, the athletic trainer that was giving, me, by the way, the first time I did stand up comedy, uh, I was like getting ready to perform. And I was like, oh, my God. And I had to run to the bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. So all, all the things come loose. There's, there's <laughs> this connection between stress and your body's physiology, that when we activate the stress response and our strong emotions get triggered in the brain, that causes this whole cascade that can empty out your bowels and it makes your heart beat faster and that uh, can sometimes be beneficial for us in certain situations and sometimes it's problematic. Uh, but uh, uh, I, I know what you're feeling. <laughs> Yeah. So, I, you know, I've always struggled with performance anxiety, whether it's before a game or before an audition. Mm -hmm. And finally, someone said to me uh, to have something planned after the event. So mm -hmm. like now when I do stand up, I always have uh, like I'm going to a movie later, I'm meeting up with friends or I'm doing something that's performance. that's not performance related that mm -hmm. I, like I have. a, And uh, and I and I realize that like a lot of times. Uh, going back to like with the depression, we, we try to medicate these feelings that we could we could manage, but we're just unaware of these different techniques. But I know you coach Frisbee. Right. How do you coach your your uh, ultimate Frisbee? How do you coach your uh, your students with performance anxiety? Well, there are uh, a couple of things I want to say about that. Um, uh, the first is about. Um, this notion I think that sometimes people have that like performance anxiety is always bad or that stress is always bad uh, when in fact that's not the case. Um, there's this, this thing called the, the Yerkes-Dodson curve, uh, which uh, sort of explains that we, to achieve optimal performance, there's sort of an optimal level of stress to have an optimal activation of the stress response. Uh, and that optimal level is not none. Uh, because when you have too little activation of the stress response, 
it usually means that you're not engaged or focused on the task that you're doing or that it's not important to you. And that means you're not going to mobilize enough attention resources or um, energy resources to meet the challenge. Uh, but as stress increases, uh, then your focus improves, your, your athletic imp uh, performance improves, there are studies on test-taking, your test-taking performance improves up to a certain point uh, of stress. And from that point, then more stress gets in the way of your performance. So no, if, you're, if your goal is to have optimal performance, then it's really important to figure out like where along that curve are you? Are you in this place of like not enough stress? Well, then your performance would actually benefit from increasing stress. Uh, whereas if you're in a place of too much stress or bad stress, then your performance would actually benefit from calming down uh, a little bit sort of in that sort of optimal zone. Uh, and w for your performance anxiety for basketball or for what I see a lot of times in ultra frisbee, like the problem that most people have is when they go into games or you're in the, you know, the finals of a tournament, uh, then they're, you know, bad stressed or, or, uh, too stressed and they could really work on calming themselves down. Uh, but when it comes to like doing a, a workout, outside of practice or working out by yourself or just like a scrimmage at practice, a lot of times the problem is, well, you're not enough stressed. Uh, and many people could benefit uh, when you improve your performance, and like in this case, athletic performance. If you can learn to treat practices like games and actually get more stressed for practices, uh, then it would help you with your performance anxiety in games because you would learn to sort of, um, uh, your, your, your practice performance would be um, better practice for the games. Um, the, uh, but the, the performance anxiety that you feel for games is probably also because games are more important and that's activating your stress response more and making you, giving you more energy. And as long as you remind yourself that uh, oh, that's what's happening. Then you realize, oh, my body's giving me the superpower to perform for my best during this game. Whereas if you think about it, oh my God, this is uh, anxiety and this is going to impair my performance. Well, then guess what? That way of thinking is going to increase your stress more to the point where, yes, in fact, it is impacting your performance and it can be a, a self-reinforcing uh, phenomenon. Uh, so that's why I like talking about the stress so that people can be aware of it and realize that it can be used for, to their advantage. It doesn't isn't necessarily just in there um, uh, to their detriment. Look, what made you want to write this book specifically? Um, I think th there are many uh, factors that went into it. One is sort of I, I like was always sort of interested in like, well, why do I find it? easier to be happy sometimes and why do I struggle and why does it seem like some people struggle more than others and uh, I was always sort of interested in um, in neuroscience and like biology and like it's so cool to see how it all fits together and how that influences our um, 
you know, emotions and, and things like addiction and motivation. It was just like really fascinating. And that's what led me to work in a neuroscience lab, uh, doing fMRI research at UCLA. Like it was really cool. We can look at people's brains and see what's happening. And around the same time I started coaching the, uh, UCLA women's ultimate Frisbee team, uh, which uh, they didn't have a team. My friend started the team and he's like, you want to help coach? And I was like, sure. And it was like the most fun thing I'd ever done. Uh, But uh, unfortunately, the thing that like really led me down this path of writing the book is not a a happy story um, because it it turned out that um, one of the girls uh, on the team was a freshman in college uh, was suffering from depression and she had been for many years uh but i didn't know that when i first started coaching because she seemed like a really happy outgoing person she was really friendly she was you know had a great sense of humor uh, or maybe like i just say that because she laughed at all my stupid uh lame jokes uh but like she was smart and athletic and talented and it wasn't until several months later that she revealed that she had depression that I was like, what? Like, why? Uh, and it really started to change my understanding of depression because I used to think of it as like, you, you have to be depressed about something. And I started to realize that like, no, it can just be a function of uh, the way your brain circuits get stuck in this unfortunate pattern of activity and reactivity. Uh, and it can be very hard to change. So while some people are depressed about something, uh, sometimes it can just happen based on brain circuitry. And uh, I felt fortunate that I was able to um, coach her and encourage her to come to practice and be a part of this really positive thing in her life. And she acknowledged several times like how important and helpful that was in um, helping her battle with her depression. Uh, but unfortunately, um, in the in the fall of her sophomore year, um, uh, her depression got worse and she isolated more and she ended up uh, taking her own life. And it was really devastating. Uh, and uh, I, I like wanted to understand it. And I was like, what, what could, you know, be going through her head that would make something like that make sense to her. And something that, um, one of her friends said at her memorial service was, um, she fought a battle every day against depression and she lost that battle once. And, uh, it really made me reflect on, the work that I was doing, like, I, you know, okay, I'm doing this research stuff and it's kind of cool, but like, how's that actually going to help people? Uh, and so that inspired me to realize like, oh, I want to go to grad school and like study depression and try and understand like what's happening in the brain in depression and what we can do about it so that I could one day help people like her. So when when you look at her and and we don't have to stay on this too long if it's if it's too much, but you know she's she's exercising she's around people. 
what were the the pieces that were missing or what was there too much of? Was she one of those overachievers? What the, the childhood abuse? I mean, that is the uh, the most complicated question. And the uh, I would say the, the question that I probably talk the least about uh, because it is um, – uh, it's not as, as feel good or inspiring as some of the other stuff that I talk about. Uh, because I've, I've often wondered that myself, uh, because like all the things I talk about in my book for the most part, like she was doing a lot of them. So like I, I went to grad school to study this and I, you know, did research to write a book, you know, many years later. And like, I'm like, oh, you could do this, you could do this, you could do this. And I like looked back at sort of the experience that started it all. And I was like, wait, but she was, you know, uh, on the ultimate team and she was seeing a therapist and she had great parents who were really uh, supportive. I mean, she was uh, um, gay, but like, you know, her family was really supportive and, you know, society is definitely uh, changing more at that point. Um but, you know, that's certainly can be a stressor. Uh, and one of the things I, I sort of realized is, like, we want to think of depression in, in a sort of a simple way. Like, we want to try and think, oh, there's got to be something wrong with this part of the brain. Or, like, there's, there, was some, there had to be some big explanation. Uh, and the truth is, like, no, your brain can just sometimes get stuck in these patterns. And if you have the, the kind of brain that's more emotionally reactive, then you're more likely to get stuck in these patterns. Um, and so it's not something that we can say like, oh, yeah, you're going to get depression or you have this gene, you're going to develop depression. Like, no, there are certain things that increase your likelihood for getting stuck in the downward spiral of depression. And some of those things you can change and some of those things you can't change. Uh, and one of the unfortunate byproducts of depression is that it gets in the way of your ability to potentially change the things that you could change. Uh, for her, I think, um, you know, it was probably if there were some factors that maybe she could have changed, like she was a very high achiever and she was very goal oriented and she was successful as a result of that successful in athletics, successful in, um, in academics. Uh, but there's a possibility that like maybe she was too hard on herself and self-critical and in certain situations being hard on yourself can be a motivating factor. You can buckle down and study harder and be successful. Uh, but in other situations, uh, it just uh, makes you um, feel worse and uh, get stuck in a downward spiral. Uh, but it, you couldn't say that like self-criticism caused her depression or caused her suicide. There are just dozens of different things that all contributed to it. Um, you know, some were probably, you know, she had certain genes or she had certain mental 
uh, coping habits and the specific habits that she had and the specific life that she was living interacted with, you know, the specific brain circuits that she had to um, get stuck, get her brain stuck in a certain pattern. And once that pattern starts to form, it's very hard to break out of because the brain tends to then think and act in ways that keep you depressed. Uh, so like, I wish I had an easy answer um, that is, you know, would be motivating for some people. Uh, but the, the thing that I try and recall, remember is like, well, um, with complex systems like the brain and depression, uh, they can sometimes get stuck in these patterns that are self-sustaining and are very hard to break. Uh, but the good news about those types of complex dynamic systems is that sometimes one little change is going to have a nonlinear effect and that's going to disrupt the communication and then it's going to make the easier, the next change easier and the next. And there's no one clear answer, one straightforward path that I can tell you of the right combination of things to do. But there are dozens of different things that you can try uh, and try in different ways and try different combinations of so that when it feels like um, everything is terrible and that you can't change anything, well, sometimes just going outside and getting some sunlight can help. It's not going to solve everything, but it's a better uh, you know, than the default habit that maybe you do already have of just sitting there and ruminating about it or learning to call a friend. And maybe it's uncomfortable the first time because you don't like reaching out. Uh, but the more that we take positive habits, then the more it changes the the way our certain um, habit pathways in the brain are wired and makes it easier over time. So uh, while there is no one big solution, you can choose from all of these scientifically validated things that are um, likely to help you. And any one thing, I can't guarantee you that's going to help, but it's going to be, you're going to be better off than if you uh, didn't do anything at all. And one, as, as you learn to experiment and stumble forward, you can learn to understand yourself better uh, so that you can be better able to give yourself the things that your brain needs in order to be happy. You know, I'm glad you brought up the part about, you know, being emotionally reactive, because I think that as adults, we overestimate our ability to take in news, media, um, you know, music. You know, we're always warning kids about who they're hanging around with, and mm. what they're watching <laughs> and what they're listening. Yeah. But as adults, we think we can just watch like Halloween one through four and not yeah. be affected or you know, uh, scroll through Instagram for an hour or two hours or watch and not be effective. Yeah. Or watch black mirror. Yeah. My wife would go to sleep. Like when we had had a kid, our first kid, like my wife goes to sleep and I'm like, I need to watch something. I would start, people recommend black mirror. I'd start watching it. And like, it took me like a couple weeks to realize like, Oh, I should not watch this right before. I have this like unsettled feeling that like, I was like, Oh, this is really disrupting my sleep patterns. Yeah, I mean, I have a friend who reads Stephen King novels before bed, and he's like, yeah, I couldn't sleep last night. I'm like, of course, you <laughs> thought a clown with an axe was going to 
take a, take you a piece, you know. Um, and but we we go well. I'm an adult. I can ha-. like no, you right. can't. Like it, it's it's having an effect, and I think that a lot of times it's it's usually a small effect built mm-hmm. up over time, and right. so we don't realize until there's a tipping point, so we can't get out of bed, right. or we're having suicidal thoughts, or you know right. what have you. Yeah. No, you I know, think, yeah. Uh, in your book, you know, because you, you talked also about like uh, her, maybe she because she was such an overachiever, uh, she was hard on herself. And what I love in your book, you, you talk about self-talk, which I've, I've been uh, working on improving my self-talk. Can you talk mm-hmm. to us about like the three to one ratio and, uh, and, and the ABCs of it? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, like there's some uh, uh, research that that. Uh, that looked at like, well, how many, you know, positive, uh, you know, things you need to hear, how many positive events do you need to have compared to negative events? Uh, and that's where that sort of like three to one ratio came. But that's like, I think it's much less relevant and, and probably, uh, like some of that research was, uh, um, uh, a little less clear, but like just the, the more general notion of like, our brain can sometimes respond a lot more strongly to negative uh, information. And it's important to be aware of like what you are telling yourself about negative information and how you are um, sort of automatically falling into um, habits of negative self-talk. Because you can't always control the things that happen to you. And you can't always control the like automatic negative thoughts of, you know, frustration or self-criticism that pop into your head. But like if you start to become aware of it, then you can start to talk to yourself in a different way that um, will create new uh, positive habits. um, And that can start to create an upward spiral. And it's helpful also to understand why we we have these negative thoughts in the first place. One, we just have a habit of them. Two, they, uh, you know, so we just do them because that's the way we've done things for a while. And there are parts of the brain that that's what they want to do. It just wants to do whatever you've done the most. Uh, we also have these negative self-talk habits because they can actually help us in the moment, briefly feel better. So if something bad happens and you blame or criticize yourself, that creates a sense of perceived control that you can blame. Oh, that was so stupid. I shouldn't have done that or whatever. And like that uh, sort of helps fulfill this desire that your your emotional circuitry in your brain has for uh, controllability and predictability about the world. Because the hardest thing to do is just to sometimes acknowledge that bad things happen and that I don't have full control over them. Uh, But if you blame yourself, well, sometimes that's helpful because you're like, oh, I know I can do better next time. And if it indeed is true, if something is actually controllable, then maybe that will motivate you to do better and motivate you to be more focused. But if it's something that you don't have control over, like I shouldn't feel so depressed all the time, like I need to change my mood or whatever, or some other mistake or accident you made, and you 
have a brain that is very emotional and very reactive to self-criticism, then the, sometimes the thing that you, you automatically do in the moment that might help you feel better in the moment can have negative long-term consequences um, that uh, cause more problems over time. But as they cause more problems over time, then it's going to drive you back to this habit of self-criticism, which again is rewarding in the moment, but then causes more problems. Sort of like drinking, like nothing wrong with having a drink to calm down. But if that's the only way that you calm down or try and deal with the, your lack of control or difficult situations, well then over time that alcohol is going to be cause more problems. And when you have those problems, then you're gonna fall back. Well, I need to take a drink and it's gonna cause more problems. But in the moment, like taking that drink is gonna make you feel better briefly. Uh, and so you have to find a way to step out of that downward spiral. And I think when it comes you know, to negative self-talk, sorry, the last, like people don't realize that it has a negative effect on their mood and they don't realize why they're doing it. So it's like, that's, that's why it's very important to become aware of and learn to, to form a better relationship with yourself. You know, be, after reading your book, you, you've uh, you changed two things. One is you helped me recognize that my hippocampus is uh, playing tricks on me because <laughs> it made me realize I do interpret neutral faces as negative faces. Mm. or like they're angry and out to get me. They're against Black Lives Matter. You know, whatever. Mm. Like I'm, I, right. I put this whole backstory behind the neutral face. Um, but it what you've what I've been encouraged to do after reading your book is because I recognize that my mind is literally playing tricks on me mm -hmm. that I write down uh, positive events from the day because mm -hmm. it's true. I, my hippocampus will forget all the people who waved and said hi and right. the, the lady who lent me money or whatever. Uh, but it will uh, remember all of the evil things and the mm -hmm. things that hurt and bothered me. Mm -hmm. uh, to, to my uh, despair, even this morning. So I went for a walk this morning and this lady uh, who I've been saying hi to forever never says hi back. She's like, walking her dog. And I was like, what's up, lady? And I was like, and then finally today she said hi. And she uh -huh. looked at me and then so I wrote it in my cell phone. I was like, lady who never says hi said hi. Uh -huh. and, uh, and just as a, a way to remind myself that, you know, uh, it's, um, that my interpretation of events aren't always the reality of the events and that right. people can change and things can change. Yeah. No, I, I think one of the, one of the challenges is that when you are in a bad mood, uh, then your hippocampus is going to make it easier to remember negative events that are similar to what you're experiencing. And so sometimes like when you're really stressed and frustrated at the end of the day, like all you can remember are the things that made you stressed and frustrated. Uh, but that's just going to keep you, you know, stuck. And if it's important to you to like be happier or there's some, uh, you know, important goal that your anger and frustration is, um, getting in the way of, well, then it might take more effort to think of positive things, but, uh, that can have measurable, impact on these key brain circuits. Uh, now, one of the challenges that sometimes people have when they practice gratitude is that they're not actually thinking about the things they're grateful for. They're using the good things in their life as a means to 
basically criticize themselves for not feeling better. <laughs> like, see, there's so much good stuff in my life. I have a, you know, a good marriage and I have a good job and I'm still miserable. I'm a terrible person. And like focusing on the positive parts in your life uh, should not be used to criticize yourself. And that doesn't mean that they're always going to change how you feel. Uh, but it's still helpful to focus on them. And alternatively, it's helpful to remember that we can have many emotions. Like you can be angry at, you know, racism and be grateful that this one lady finally just smiled at you. Like you can, we can have multiple emotions at the same time. It's just uh, if at this point, you know, my anger is helping me because my anger is like helping me take action, then great, be angry. But if I recognize, oh, no, my anger is actually getting in the way of me trying to accomplish the things that I want to accomplish, then, oh, well, then maybe I can do things to, um, you know, to manage my anger, redirect it in better ways, uh, or to focus on the positive things in my life. But I like the overall thing to people remember is like that negative emotions aren't necessarily bad. Uh, like if you experience a lot of, you know, say racist people, like you should be angry. Um, but if you find that it's negatively impacting you, uh, then there are sometimes the, the, um, uh, the best thing is to like, Oh, just refocus, um, what your brain is automatically paying attention to so that, um, you can be happier. You know, in the section about uh, exercise, and 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 for the listeners out there, people are like, "Yeah, I've heard exercise, sleep, uh, gratitude." Way, blah, this blah, is blah. me as a white person talking to a black person. I feel like I should just highlight that uh, I'm not saying <laughs> that you should just ignore the race and just focus on the positive. Uh, <laughs> I was just saying that it does, but I'm saying as a thing that you. And this is one of the complex things that people have is that like sometimes the best answer when you are frustrated is to redirect your energy and focus towards something that makes you feel happier. But sometimes the best thing to do with your anger is to direct the source of the anger to confront and fix that and to like go protest in the streets. And like, it's not always clear at any point that like, well, is this something that I should just ah, brush off and ignore and like refocus and just have a happy day and like not let this ruin my day? Or is this something that I need to confront? And like, that is, it's a challenging uh, task because uh, if you only ever take the path of, well, let me just focus on the positive, then sometimes we can just get stuck in unfortunate situations because we're like, oh, I'm just, I'm just going to focus on the positive. Uh, and that actually might get in the way of, of you, um, uh, uh, attacking the, the cause of it in the first place. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, the, the, the whole, this black lives matter movement, the, the protests, uh, the videos, uh, all the media, you know, even though I'm trying to stay away from it because I am emotionally reactive and mm -hmm. sensitive to it all. Uh, you, you can't stop it. People want to talk to you about it. And one of the ways I've channeled my anger is into research and, and realizing mm -hmm. that, wow, there's so much about black history, uh, American history, world history 
that I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you know, th- th- this, the, all the protests that are taking place, people are like over the video. Some people, I've heard people say that just over a video. And uh-huh. what they don't realize is it's like depression is like suicidality where it's a, it's a cumulative effect. It's yeah. an accumulation of things over time. And we've reached uh, a tipping point. And so for me, I'm realizing that although I have a general knowledge and understanding and experiences, like I don't, there's still so many gaps I want to fill in. And mm-hmm. so for me, that's where I've been channeling my anger. So you, for, I, I bring that up to say that how you express your anger doesn't have to be through protests. You don't have to be out there on the streets with a billboard right. uh, because at some point somebody's going to have to say something. Right. And, and we're going to and that person needs to be well read and, and well researched. So, yeah. you know, pick your pick your lane of, of whatever's comfortable for you and don't well, feel like you have to do yeah. what everybody else is doing. And that right, taking action can mean a variety of different things. But sort of like to bring it back to what I was saying about the Yerkes Dodson curve, like if your anger and stress about, say, you know, racism is like so high that it's like actually getting in the way of your ability to take action, well then, yeah, you could benefit from learning to focus more on the positive, so to get to that place where you're more in the optimal performance to take action. If on the other side, you're, you know, not angry, you know, enough, then you could, you could benefit um, from increasing that anger. And probably most white people, uh, they are not angry enough and they start to feel a little bit angry and then they just like, oh, well, you know what would make me feel better? It's to just not think about it. And that's really what privilege is, is to like, when you start to feel those negative emotions, to be like, oh, well, I'll just think about some other nice thing that happened to me and then I feel better. But you're not going to experience the negative effects of that thing going forward. And that's one of the things I've realized that um, it's too easy for white people to just, or it has been too easy for white people to just, um, like, when they start to feel discomfort about talking about things about race or confronting the sort of um, racial inequities that we have or the racist history of the United States, that it's too easy to just, like, oh, no, I'm just going to go do a yoga class or I'm just going to do my gratitude journal. And, um, in, and in fact, the, like when in fact the, the, the better response would be to actually increase anger so that we can change, uh, the system rather than just, um, be happier within it. You know, I'm, I'm so glad you said that because, uh, I live in LA and I know you live in LA too. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I see one more calm T-shirt, I'm going to go batshit because (laughs) there is a place, like you said, for anger. Like there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, I'm a little bit angry. It doesn't have to be about the protest or Black Lives Matter, but just in general. I mean, there's a reason why you're going to yoga class five days a week. Do you see white people being calm, wearing calm T-shirts? Because like that's how I say, like, oh, if you are one of the people being affected by racism and you like you want to tell your own community hey guys like let's calm down a little bit to like refocus our efforts more like fine but if you're like one of the the beneficiaries of a racist system and then the you know the uh, people of color like getting angry about it like it's not helpful to be like hey you guys need to calm 
down. Uh, but it's you know it's so much easier to place the the problem on somebody else because you're like, great, I don't have to do anything about it. Um, and uh, sometimes that we do that because it reduces in the moment our negative feelings, uh, but it it can sort of perpetuate problems over time. And, and that's sort of why I say like the it's not always clear like what the best path forward is to like, well, should I just accept this as something and like refocus and just try and be happy? Or is this something that I should try to change? You know, I want to get into uh, exercise and, and how it relates to addiction, because here's another um, area where you mean we're cha- not to solve racism here. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll put the we'll just air the the part where we talked about uh, the the racism and and, and see what happens. And by the way, getting back to it because you were talking at the beginning of the conversation about like brown people, oh, uh, yeah. people went to brown. Oh, and, like, you're talking about actually, Indians. I think, well, no, but this is one of the things I think about. Like one of the things perhaps that differentiates brown that uh, it seems to me that something about going to brown instills within you or maybe it just selects for people who already have this already, a desire to have like a greater or broader impact on the world. Uh, and that like there are many people who went to Harvard or Yale or Princeton who like just go, you know, work at a hedge fund and, you know, make a ton of money and they feel great about it. And like, yeah, there are people who like graduate from Brown and like go to work at Goldman Sachs but I think almost all of them would feel in some way conflicted about it of like, but why am I doing this? Like, what am I going to do with my, you know, money or whatever? And I think that's like a really uh, empowering thing about Brown students is that like, they sort of feel this sense of like, why I have, I owe something to, you know, the world. I can't just like take uh, what I want for myself. You know, what's interesting, I'm glad you brought that up because I have a buddy who went to Harvard. And when I asked him why he was going to Harvard, it was I, 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 I. And when I have met people from Brown, there is this more global vibe that you get. It's almost like when I meet somebody from Berkeley. It's a little Mm -hmm. different, uh, less hippie, but um, (laughs) but still with this with this energy of of we were all one. You right. know, because it was different faces, different energy. And, and uh, I was like, hey, it's something about maybe I just go check out the campus. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, all right. This is not about Brown. Uh, <laughs> people are like, is this is this a paid advertisement? By the way, my wife went to Harvard. So hopefully. She oh. <laughs> uh, in your in your book, you talked about how exercise can help reduce addiction uh-huh. and so what that has changed for me, because I'm always like, I just don't like to consume things. I like to figure out how can I apply it? And if I can't apply it, then I'm, I'm not interested with just entertainment. And so I have made it a point to do some form of exercise or movement before every meal. So when I wake up, I go for like a, a 40 minute walk or I'll do like some I'll do like six sun salutations or, mm. or some type of movement and then have breakfast and before lunch. I'll go for a walk before dinner. I go for well, actually, with dinner, I usually go for a walk after. 
Well, it'll, which it'll it is off. it? Is it before or after your story? I know. <laughs> God. <laughs> what is happening? Hold on. I'm, uh, I'm getting weird audio. All right. Here we go. Uh, you know, I switch it up based on because sometimes it depends on if my girl cooks, if I cook, sure. yeah, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it's made me more conscious of because what I've noticed that if I do go for a walk or do work out, I eat less and I savor it more. Ah, yeah. Uh, and so can you talk to us about how exercise can reduce addiction, not just with food, but alcohol and drugs and like what 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 is being released there? Right. Well, like there's a ton of stuff going on. And this is one of the complexities about science, because like to in order to do science, you have to like do it in a lab that's under very controlled conditions so that you just isolate one variable. But in the real world, like any real world intervention is going to affect like dozens of different brain systems. So like the reason why exercise can affect addiction, addiction is like there are tons of explanations. And one of those is that uh, exercise reduces stress. And when you are uh, stressed or you have higher activations of the emotional circuitry in the brain, that um, de-emphasizes the, uh, the role of the, the rational prefrontal cortex. And it overemphasizes the role of our um, deeper uh, habitual and impulsive brain regions so that when you are stressed, it's harder to act based on, oh, what, what do I you know, want in my long-term goal? And you're much more likely to act based on whatever your habits are or whatever's easiest or you know, most enjoyable at the moment. Uh, so anything you can do to reduce stress is going to make it easier to live your life intentionally rather than reactively. Uh, exercise also, um, impacts the, uh, the dopamine system, uh, which is one of the primary reward systems in the brain. Uh, and, uh, when there's a really interesting study where they took, um, uh, smokers and they had them not smoke for 24 hours. So they're like really, you know, Jones in for a cigarette. And then they stuck them inside an fMRI scanner to look at their brain activity while they showed them pictures of cigarettes uh, to like really stimulate cravings. But for half of the people, before they got in the, inside the scanner, they just had them ride on a stationary bike for like 10 minutes. So everything else is the same except for that one little period of exercise. And the people who got exercise um, had significantly, uh, reduced cravings. Like they didn't crave the cigarettes as much. And, uh, on top of that, when they looked at the brain scan, what happened, the, these, um, uh, habit and reward circuits in the brain, uh, activated less in when seeing the pictures of the cigarettes. So there's something about the exercise was modulating this reward and habit circuitry uh, in a way uh, that they didn't um, that didn't feel as strong a pull that they had to smoke. Now that on itself isn't going to make you quit smoking, but if the the habit part of your brain is isn't 
making you feel compelled to smoke as much and you're not feeling as strong a craving, well, then it might be a little bit easier to make a more positive choice and, you know, uh, which is going to lead to more positive consequences. You're going to have, you know, make progress in, you know, not smoking. You're going to feel more control over your life. You're going to exercise more. You're going to do these things. And therefore we can create, uh, an upward spiral, but it's not about like, Oh, it's going to fix it in the short term. It's just conducive to making it easier to change over time. You know, I'm glad you said uh, uh, you mentioned something about feeling like you're in control because in your book, you even talk about how it's not necessarily about being in control of your life. It's about mm. feeling in control of yeah. your life. Can you speak more to that and how that relates to setting goals? Yeah. Well, like one of the things, you know, as I talked about, like if you sometimes um, the the challenge with our um, you know, per optimal performance is that we're too stressed. And sometimes that it's that we're not enough stressed. Uh, but I'll focus for now on the times when we're too stressed. When you're too stressed, uh, we often tend to focus on the things that out of our, are out of our control, which make us more stressed. Uh, and if you can focus on the things that are under your control, then uh, that can help to reduce stress uh, into a way that makes it easier to act intentionally. Uh, and so one of the problems when we have addictive behaviors, uh, and you might hear my daughter trying to bust her way into the room. Uh, she's three, so you have to forgive her. Um, the, uh, one of the things that happens when we have addictive behaviors, we focus on how we feel which is uncontrollable. Like, well, I really feel like smoking. I really feel like eating. And well, you can't really control your feelings. And we focus on our inability to stop from doing that behavior. And all of that makes us feel out of control, which increases our stress, which makes it more likely that we will do those old habits. Um, when you focus on exercise, that sometimes sidesteps the issue. You might be like, yeah, I feel like smoking. I feel like eating. And I, I'm worried they're not going to be able to change. You know what I can do? I can go for a run. And simply by focusing on something that you can do, you stop focusing on the things that you can't do. Uh, so focusing on anything that you can do, uh, like play video games. Like if you have a problem with overeating and you don't have a problem with playing video games, then when you uh, feel like overeating is if you just, well, I, can, I can't change my feelings, but I can play a video game. Well, then that creates a greater sense of perceived control. But if the thing that you're, doing like like you choose to exercise also has long-term beneficial effects that will impact your sleep that night and your feelings the next day well that's even better because that's something that you can control that will also over time uh make your life easier and make it easier to feel in control uh over time i love that man it's it's all about control i realize i'm such a control freak <laughs> well, and uh most people are. <laughs> uh, and, and speaking of which, I, I think, you know, being a control freak is why a lot of people struggle with sleep. But I love the questions that you have uh, people write down, or not the questions, but you talk about writing down your worries and writing down gratitude mm -hmm. for bed. What, what is the uh, neuroscience behind that? Yeah, well, they're, those are two totally separate things. Like, uh, Sometimes what, you know, we're struggling from is, well, I just need to have more positive emotions. 
And uh, if I just, um, you know, think about the good things that happened to me from the day, uh, then I'm, I can overcome my automatic focus on the negative and like, oh, it makes me feel better, helps reduce my stress. And um, that's where a gratitude journal can be so helpful. And gratitude um, affects the dopamine system in the brain. It's been shown to affect the serotonin uh, system uh, in the brain and uh, has also been shown to help improve sleep quality. And we get all the benefits from that. Uh, but this is one of those things that like people, you know, they want to know all like the brain hacks or life hacks and, okay, just tell me, I do this and this. And they do it without any understanding of it or without any understanding of themselves. And uh, there are times where it's helpful to just try some positive thinking and focus on the positive. But if over time, you know, these worries or still come up or there's some specific thing that you're worried about, well, just trying to ignore those feelings isn't always going to make them go away. Um, and it's not easy because sometimes feelings are just, they're just noise. And if you just ignore them, they'll go away. But if you've tried that, you know, for the last six months or the last six years of your life and these feelings keep coming back, well then maybe there's something there that you could explore. And instead of just refocusing, you could actually try and take action to fix those feelings. Uh, so if you're a really anxious person, uh, sometimes like uh, you have specific things that you're worried about. You're, you're trying to buy a house and you're worried, I have to contact the mortgage broker and I have to do this and I have to do that. Or you're like planning a wedding, and you have 50 million things to you know, worry about. Well, if you're worried about specific things, then like write them down. Because part of the reason you were worried about them is that like it's in, it would be problematic if you forgot them and your brain doesn't want you to forget them. So you're just running them over and over in your head. But that's not the best way to remember to do them. The best way to remember to do them is to write them down and make a plan. And then uh, you sort of download that information from your brain onto a computer or onto a piece of paper. And then you don't have to think about it anymore. You can put an alarm in your phone. Uh, and that's, that's why uh, writing down your worries can be helpful, particularly if you um, connect them to action. Because when we worry is just thinking about all the things that could go wrong. When you start to think about, well, what actions could I take to prevent that thing from going wrong? Or what actions would I take if that thing went wrong? Well, then you start to move into the realm of planning because you're connecting these feelings and the action circuits in your brain. And that's when it can start to become more productive. Um, but there's like, you should try them at different points in your life. Try seeing what gratitude is beneficial for you. Try seeing what um, writing down your worries or planning can be helpful for you and see, um, you know, what part, you know, what, what mixtures or relative um, amounts you need to include in the recipe of your own happiness. You know, and how I've applied that, I mean, there were so many applicables applicables i don't know from your book i don't know uh, so uh what i do what i've been doing is i'll write down something that bothers me uh for the next day to look mm -hmm. at it like 24 hours from now to see yeah if it still bothers me and yeah. that's how i've incorporated that i also keep a journal by my bed to write down something but usually i realize if i catch it in a moment and i put it in my calendar so then i'm, right. I'm actually reading i'm like this is what bothers me i don't know why 
But let's look at this in 24 hours. And then yeah. I just feel an automatic release. Yeah. Well, because like sometimes the things that bother us are just like random things. And if you just wait um, five minutes, it won't bother you anymore. But like if you write it down and come back to it later, well, then if it's still bothering you, you'd be like, oh, then I then the then instead of just ignoring it, you should take action and do something about it. But like you, you need to become clear and as you, in your mind, and as you gain a better understanding of yourself, this is easier to do. Become clear in your mind about like, oh, what are the worries that I tend to have that are just random crap that pops into my head that I should just, you know, accept and refocus and move on. And what are the things that pop up and keep popping up that maybe I'm, you know, ignoring and in fact I should be taking action to solve them. And oftentimes the reason that we get stuck is because, you know, we're treating something as, you know, we're sort of giving up or accepting something that we actually should try and control because it's important to us and it's controllable. Uh, or we try to keep taking action for something that isn't controllable or isn't important. <laughs> and uh, when we make mistakes about like, well, what's actually controllable or what's not or what's important to me or what's not, uh, then we um, can either give up in places where we should, shouldn't or we bang our heads against the same wall uh, when in fact we should give up and redirect. And that's why I always emphasize um, to like my coaching clients, like try and clarify in your mind, like, well, what you know, is more important to me and what's less important to me and what's more controllable and what's less controllable. I have two last questions uh, I sure. want to go over. Uh, you know, I love and when you talk about positive habits, the four questions that you you ask yourself to remind yourself that you are indeed a, a worthwhile person. Uh -huh. uh, can you go over three of those? I want I want I want a cliffhanger for those who haven't read the book yet. You got to you got to read it to get the fourth one. Well, now <laughs> now you're you're quizzing me on my own. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll say it. No, no. No, no, so, that. Okay. <laughs> yes, please. All right. So, one was uh have you ever forgiven someone who has wronged you? Oh yeah. Uh, have you ever uh shown consideration uh for somebody else? Have you ever cheered someone else? up and I'll, oh, right. I'll just leave it at those three yeah. but I remember reading those and being like yes yes and yes and then for the fourth one yes and I did I felt so much better and it does release some I forget the drug uh, but I was like alright now I'm ready to go do this thing that right. I, I haven't wanted to do Well, because it's a complex uh, thing that's what you're describing as self affirmation um, focusing on your own positive qualities um, and that has elements of gratitude. It has elements of focusing on what you can control and, you know, your strengths and the things that you're good at. Uh, and that can really help change bad habits. Because I mentioned before, like when we focus on our bad habits, we often focus on how we don't like them and we feel critical of ourselves and how we don't have control over them. And that makes us feel bad about ourselves and out of control. And if you instead you just focus on the positive parts of yourself and the things that you wouldn't want to change, then, well, it's much easier to like not change the things that you don't want to change about yourself. Uh, and then 
uh, that feels easier. It makes you feel more uh, in control and it makes you feel better about yourself. Um, and when you focus on those parts of yourself, well, those parts of yourself feel bigger. And when you focus on all of your bad habits, then those things feel bigger. And sometimes we focus, you know, we're so stressed out by our bad habits and we just focus on how we can't change them and how bad they are for us that we just feel like a big jumble of bad habits all tied together with a rubber band. Whereas when you focus on the best parts of yourself and the things you appreciate and the things you wouldn't want to change, then yeah, you can recognize, oh yeah, there's some bad habits, but they don't feel so like all encompassing or central to you. You can recognize, oh, that's like just this little thing about myself. Yeah, I could change that, like getting a haircut rather than changing something core to your being. I love it. And then last question, uh, well, actually two more, but uh, last one in terms <laughs> of the book, uh, where you talk about uh, social, uh, you know, connecting with others and, and surrounding yourselves with, with other people. And uh, a lot of times, and, and this is so important because especially during the quarantine, but even before the quarantine, a lot of people end up uh, ending their lives because they don't feel a social connection. So, mm -hmm. uh, and that, I think that's why we're surprised, especially when athletes end up taking their life. Right. Because in our eyes, they're, they're surrounded by so many people, but if we don't feel connected mm -hmm. to those people, can you talk about what causes us to feel connected to other people? And then, uh, and then how to handle rejection? Or yeah. feelings of rejection. I should say feelings of rejection. Yeah, I mean, that's a it's a very complex question. Uh, one of the things that's important to realize is that, like, when it comes to depression, uh, like, there are two key factors that you need to be aware of. Um, one is loneliness, and the other is social isolation. Uh, social isolation is sort of more of an objective thing. Like, it's... Are you around other people? Are you interacting with other people? And like athletes generally don't have a problem with that. Um, the, uh, or comedians generally don't have a problem. You're like talking with, you're surrounded by people all the time. Uh, but, uh, and, and if you were sitting at home by yourself all the time, oftentimes like you can improve your mood a lot and reduce stress by just like, going to be around other people or interacting with other people. Like even if you don't talk to other people, just being around them can help with social isolation. Uh, but loneliness is a much more complex thing because you could be around other people. You could be in the middle of a party and still feel alone and disconnected. Um, and, but conversely, you could be by yourself, you know, in your room and still feel very connected to other people. Uh, and some of what uh, makes us feel connected to other people is this um, chemical oxytocin that uh, is key in um, close, trusting relationships. And uh, when you are feeling uh, feelings of loneliness, it's important to to realize that part of that is about like the, the way forward is about deepening the relationships that you already have or uh, finding another deeper relationship. It's not going to be solved. Loneliness will not be solved simply by having more friends or more social interactions or uh, to get more laughs as a comedian or to get more likes on your Instagram page. Uh, 
Um, the, uh, but like, because loneliness is sort of this amorphous thing and it's sometimes harder and scary to be vulnerable and open up to people, it can be easier to just, and sort of more immediately rewarding to just focus on, you know, getting more people to like my post or getting people to talk to me or getting people to like, you know, laugh. Uh, but in doing that, we often, uh, ignore the loneliness that we are, um, feeling and that requires accepting your vulnerability, um, focusing on, uh, on creating deeper relationships and also gratitude can be helpful with that. Uh, if you're struggling with loneliness, try writing a thank you letter to, uh, to someone in your life, even if you don't know who they are, like that random white lady who smiled at you, uh, like, Oh, you could write a thank you letter to her. You don't even have to send it cause you don't even know, you know, who she is. But when we, um, write a thank you letter explaining to someone what, uh, they did for us and why we appreciated it and why it was so meaningful that benefits you, even if you never send it. And so that's one of the things I recommend for people who are feeling lonely. Uh, you know, think about your high school math teacher or, you know, the barista who smiled at you or whatever, like express, like not just notice what you're grateful for, but take action to write a thank you letter. Uh, and if you want to send it to them, great, but like just write it fully expressing out that gratitude and that can help us feel more connected to others. Oh yeah. Random white lady. You about to get a letter. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, this, this was such no, a powerful don't, episode. Because then, then white people will start thinking that they should be thanked every time they do <laughs> minimal, bare minimum. Like, it, yeah, <laughs> I, and I had this experience too. I like promoted this, um, um, black psychologist book on Twitter uh, and like it got a bunch of tweets and likes and whatever, but like she didn't respond. And I was like, man, like she should really thank, you know, have, and I'm like, no, I, I shouldn't expect to, <laughs> to be thanked uh, for, for being, uh, you know, uh, anti-racist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She, I mean, well, she probably has like a social media manager and never checks her Twitter, but she should be thanking you. I feel you, Alex. Tell me who she is and I'll, I'll, I'll do the talking for you. (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll be your black mediator. I I appreciate it. Um, Alex, this is, this was a a powerful episode, man. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Is there anything from the book or from life, uh, that we haven't talked about that you feel like, uh, because you know, I'm sure, uh, like just like when I do a joke and I and I release it out in the streets, I always realize like what I could have added or how it could have been better. Is there something that you've learned since you released the book that you're like, ah, I wish I put this in a book or I'll put this in the next one or? Oh yeah, well like since I mean I wrote the Upward Spiral in 2015 and uh, one of the, and then I I I wrote um, the Upward Spiral workbook that came out last year uh, and I added a lot more like practical stuff about how to implement these things. I mean, I do think it's important to like understand your brain so you can understand yourself better. Uh, but in the workbook, I realized one of the things that I really didn't, um, talk about explicitly, uh, as much 
in in the upward spiral was uh, mindfulness. Like it's sort of implicitly in there that like, oh, when you notice, you know, these negative feelings you have, you go, oh, that's just my amygdala, you know, worried about what might happen, or that's just my dorsal stratum trying to get me to do whatever I've done the most, you know, before. So there's sort of like implicitly a lot in there, but I wrote a lot about um, mindfulness a lot more uh, and uh, and its importance and how you can implement it. Uh, it's just unlike, I think, what most mindfulness uh, proponents will say, I don't think it's the solution to everything, uh, but it's a very powerful skill to have. Uh, and the other one that I don't think I talked about as much explicitly in the upward spiral, though it's sort of there implicitly as well, is self-compassion of like, just don't be so hard on yourself. Like your brain didn't evolve to make you happy. Your, your brain evolved to survive and reproduce. And so there are many things that like your brain wants, you know, to get you to do that's like going to get in the way of your happiness. It's not always going to be easy or the, you know, your, your brain doesn't care about you being a successful comedian or some other things that are important to you in your life. But if they're important to you, then yeah, you can do them. You might have some negative feelings and some stress to overcome, but, uh, if you always let your life be guided by, you know, your moment to moment feelings, then a lot of times you'll miss out on some of the things that are most important to you. And one of the biggest factors that gets in the way of that is our own self criticism. And, uh, if you can just learn to, to talk to yourself nicely and, um, uh, be a nicer person to yourself, it, it makes things a lot easier and it makes it much uh, more accessible to be happy. Yeah, be nice to yourself. I, I, I'm glad you brought up that self-compassion part. When I do my guided meditation by Puff Daddy, I, it's, it's just... A, <laughs> oh, that's, a real, that's a real thing. <laughs> well, he, it's, it's real. He has one on Audible, uh-huh. which I don't know how he talked them into letting him do guided meditations. He, uh, he have a very soothing voice. He, he he does, but he also like has a kind of a childish, mm. like uh, it's there's I don't know like if there's like a lisp or so, like there's something in his voice that's a uh, a bit distracting, <laughs> at the same time. And plus he was charged with killing Biggie. Like mm. there's just so many distractions. Every time I listen <laughs> to his album, I'm like, did he kill Biggie though? Like or and then he had like a gun charge. Like I'm I'm bringing up his whole history. It's hard to it's hard to breathe deeply when you think the person who's talking mm-hmm. to you. Uh, might be standing behind you with a gun. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but uh, but but I listened to it anyway because I'm also fascinated by how people reinvent themselves. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh man, he he's had so many iterations. So that's fascinating. Uh, last question, Alex, and I ask this of everybody who does the podcast because I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life. Mm-hmm. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Alex? Um, you know, that's a tough question, but like one of the things I was just realizing that I appreciate about you was like, you're taking a very difficult situation, a difficult, you know, topic and, you know, you're infusing some humor into it. And that is, uh, one of the things I tried to do in the upward spiral 
it's just, you know, my natural way of thinking about difficult things. Like, yeah, your life is terrible, but that doesn't mean you can't laugh about it sometimes. Uh, or just laugh at your own like ridiculous idiosyncrasies of like, you know that this habit is so terrible and you can't stop from doing it. Like at some point, like you can just laugh at yourself about it. You don't have to always take these terrible things so seriously. Um, and like when I was writing the book, my, the editor was like, I don't know if this is appropriate for like a book about depression. Like this is, you know, I don't know if you should have so many jokes and I'm like, what, like should people, should I just like lecture people like, no, you're depressed. Act like it, damn it. Like just because you're depressed or everything is terrible doesn't mean you can't find a reason to laugh, even if it's just to laugh at yourself and the absurdity of the situation that you're in. Uh, and uh, that's why I've always found existentialism really compelling and, you know, and Camus and the myth of Sisyphus, uh, you know, that, that sort of gets like really... Um, you know, more academic about it, but just the notion of like, just take a breath and find something to laugh about, uh, can be a really powerful way to shift your perception of the world and of yourself and, um, cause key changes in your brain that might make it easier, uh, to take more positive action. Thank you so much, Alex. Uh, plug all your things. Where can people find you? Where can they get the book? <laughs> plug all that. Be shameless. Yes. Well, you can find the Upward Spiral and the Upward Spiral Workbook, you know, wherever books are sold. If you can find a bookstore, uh, more power to you. Uh, otherwise, you know, you can get them online. Uh, the uh, um, my, my Twitter is a prefrontal blog. Um, and my, my website is uh, Alex Corb, PhD. That's A-L-E-X-K-O-R-B-P-H-D.com. Uh, everyone always misspells my last name, even though it's very short and simple. Uh, it means basket in German, if that helps you remember it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, come check me out. Uh, for the listeners out there, I appreciate you listening in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you being proactive, for you taking a shower, brushing your teeth, call the 1-800-SUICIDE number. I've called it twice. I'm still here. I've been to therapy, still here. Keep going. I know it's not easy. Nobody said it's easy, uh, but we. But it's up to us. Uh, and, and take a step forward. Uh, you can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Uh, get the upward spiral. I read that book, and what I love about it, like I said, is that He's not just like, you know, uh, giving you a list of things to do. He's giving you a reason of why you should do these things. And then also it's very applicable. Get the workbook, uh, if nothing else. And I'm, I'm definitely going to get I've I've listened to your book twice, Alex. Uh, and and I love it, man. Um, uh, what else? Is there anything else? No, that's it. Uh, thank you for being with us. Please share and like. Give us some thumbs up. Leave comments. All that good stuff. Alex, thank you so much. Thank you.